0: Hello, and welcome back to the KI Prime Podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. In our last episode, we heard from the first of the fellows, Dr. Nicole Woods, and her research examining the role of basic science knowledge in clinical reasoning and the development of medical expertise. This time, my conversation is with Dr. Walter Epic, a professor of pediatrics and medical education who, until recently, was based at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. For a number of years, he's practiced pediatric emergency medicine alongside a research career. His research initially started in the area of healthcare simulation, with a particular focus on debriefing. Recently, as part of his PhD journey, his research has become very focused, not only on these learning conversations and educational settings, but also the synergies with workplace conversations and their intrinsic learning potential. In our interview in the summer of 2020, he told me why experiences in his clinical practice led him into this particular area of research.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a pediatric emergency physician, which means I work at a large children's hospital here in Chicago, still for the next few weeks before I relocate. What led me down this path really much an inspiration from my clinical work. You know, as I said, I've been very much steeped in healthcare simulation and this space. And it would have been around four or five years ago when I became intrigued with the power of workplace conversations. And that there are two main impetuses in that in that regard. The first was being on call in the hospital in the middle of the night and having a very sick child come into the hospital, four or five years old, a child with special needs who had many surgeries and was followed very closely by the surgical service. And the child came in quite unwell with a concern for an overwhelming blood poisoning, a, a, a blood infection or sepsis, as we call it. And as we initially started taking care of the child, I turned to one of the residents or SHOs, as you may know them, and said, we need the surgeons to come now. And it seemed like 60 seconds later, the surgery resident was standing behind me and helping with the care of the patient. And after the patient was stabilized and had been admitted to the hospital, I had a chat with the resident about this. I was quite intrigued because this, this ability to convey urgency in a way that is also convincing and persuasive to get someone to drop whatever it is they're doing seemed quite profound that that resident was able to to do this. And she had used several buzzwords and clearly articulated how sick the patient was using words that the surgery resident would understand. And that really set me on a path to explore how is it that residents learn this very particular and mission-critical skill, which is to communicate in a way that's convincing, succinct, and concise. And that led down a series of studies looking at these types of things. That was the first thing. And the second thing was a burgeoning collaboration with a work in organizational psychologists from Zurich, Switzerland, who was very interested in team reflection, which is the interactions teams have to get on the same page, to make sure they're going in the right direction, to make sure there's nothing that needs to change, to make sure that everyone's heard from, that people can offer their input, and that these team reflective processes are really important in dynamic, ever-changing situations, ones that I encounter frequently in the emergency department when someone, let's say a child has fallen out of a second story window, and is potentially very, very ill, and there's constantly new information, the situation is changing, and how do we keep the team on the same page and moving in the right direction so things get done expeditiously and in the right order so that the child will have the best possible outcome? And so I went from debriefing and simulation and then started looking at workplace conversations both between two people specifically on the telephone, and then within teams in, in emergency settings.
0: This is fascinating to me as a communications coach. I spend much of my time helping people with their workplace conversations, bringing messages to life so the audience remembers the message and takes action on it. There is plenty of focus in medical education on technical skills, diagnostic skills, and more and more now on communication skills. It seems this is becoming an important competency.
1: Well, I really appreciate you framing it as a a critically important area. And then I'm going to pick up on something that you just said, which is it's a competency. And actually, what a lot of my work is about is not focusing on it as a competency, but focusing on the talk, which is the verbal, nonverbal content and the social implications. Looking at the talk as a medium of the learning that's occurring. So there is communicative competency. And everyone's focused on that increasingly, as you've highlighted. My particular area of interest is what is the intrinsic learning potential of those conversations that goes above and beyond the role of communication as a competency, an act of competency for clinicians? So, for example, in my uh, studies, looking at work-related telephone conversation, that is those conversations that junior doctors have with other physicians, nurses, et cetera, I was exploring with them who they spoke with, what they talked about, what were the processes that were happening on the telephone. And one of the things that we came up with is that every day there are these tensions on the telephone. And I frame them, based on my analysis with my team, as productive conversational tensions. These are tensions that are a little bit unpleasant dealing with power differentials when people push back and seemingly are not open to where you're coming from or what you'd like to do. And then, of course, dealing with uncertainty in a way that preserves your trustworthiness. And when you when the young doctors were struggling in these ways, they would find these conversations unpleasant. And through the desire to reduce future unpleasantness, they would change the way they would speak, what they said and how they said it. So Of course, that was about expressing medical knowledge and how things needed to get done. The social components of it, like being polite and uh, collegiality and these sort of things, but also how they said things, the rhetoric of it, being persuasive, much like the, the resident I outlined at the outset, who was very quickly able to convince someone to drop everything they were doing and immediately come which is about making sure they see what a priority that is. So that there's something there about the competency, but it's about learning it through the conversation that you can't get from an instructional video or something that you read. You have to have experienced it. And the medium of that experiential learning is the talk, is the conversation.
0: I've heard you say that often people think of simulations as learning to perform, but you prefer to look at it as learning to learn.
1: Yes, very much so. And I think you really highlighted one of the things that uh, I came up with during my PhD journey was this juxtaposition of simulation as learning to perform. You practice something in a simulated space so that you're ready to do it and, and to a high level in practice. But you can use simulation to learn how to learn from your clinical work. And the specific example was one from these telephone conversations, because there's lots of things that are happening in these telephone calls, people interrupting you, asking you a 1,000 questions. And if you're aware that these are phenomena that are happening, then these junior doctors can realize, gee, if someone's interrupting me after the first three or four sentences and asking, like, why are you calling me? They're asking out of a clear need, like, I need to know why you're calling me. But that's also implicit or disguised feedback that tells them you've got to frame the conversation up front. You need to say, hey, listen, I'm calling you for this reason. This is what I need from you. Let me give you some background. And it's this interrelation between the competency and how you learn through the conversation to be competent that is, has been the focus of that work.
0: So what would the framework of these simulations look like? Well, if I'm thinking
1: about this paradigm of simulation as learning to perform, then I would design simulations, let's say, to, to, to train up a communication skill. I would design simulation scenarios with a focus on needing to communicate some bits and pieces and then align my assessment, let's say using a checklist or some other, other form of assessment, to provide learners with feedback about their ability to perform that skill, to include all critical bits of information. And as it relates to the telephone conversations, there are existing models and acronyms out there that one could use to structure the conversation. And do they adhere to them? That would be the, the, the one example. In terms of learning to learn through simulation, what I would do would be to design simulations that would perhaps use a simulated conversation partner who's doing all the things, who is manifesting the the learning cues that I would want these young learners to be aware of in their future clinical practice and what the value of that is. So it's less about assessing what they're doing, but apprising them of what is going on, reflecting with them together in the debriefing about what these phenomena are and what they mean so that they're attuned to them or sensitized to them when they're on the phone a week and two weeks from now. So they say, oh, I'm getting interrupted all the time. Maybe I need to change something so that I'm not getting interrupted. They're asking me lots of questions. Maybe that's a cue to me that I should have that information up front and not wait for them to pose the questions, this sort of thing.
0: You mentioned rhetoric there, and we talked about Aristotle with Brian Hodges in an earlier podcast. Aristotle's three pillars of rhetoric are ethos, pathos, and logos, tools to engage an audience and think about rhetoric from what it is that the audience needs to hear, so you build trust. Is that an important part of your framework?
1: Uh, 100%. And I will say in the research that I've done, I would hear loud and clear from those uh, doctors who were still in training but very far along, some of them seven or eight years into their training, so quite experienced uh, doctors, that over time you learn that if you want to be persuasive, if you want to earn trust, you need to come across as being trustworthy, meaning uh, presenting information in a standardized way that people are expecting to hear, but then using the words that they want to hear. So if I'm on the phone with, a, let's say, an anesthetist, I need to use these words. If I'm on the phone with a surgeon, I need to use those words. When I'm on the phone with an intensive care unit doctor, I need to use other words. And that the words or the lingo, the buzzwords, as people would describe it, were fundamentally important. And that the way to get uh, to achieve your goal in the conversation is to think about what do they need to hear so that they will then respond In a way that supports my patient care because that's ultimately what it's about in many instances you need someone to come right away because they're the only one with the expertise to help that patient or that child and so you need to sort of unlock their motivation to come and uh, using words that will trigger their response and their emotional reaction if you will is fundamentally important and skilled communicators might know that intuitively and my work is moving in a direction to help people understand that and give them a space to reflect on on that process. Rather than them learning it by happenstance, these junior doctors, I'm hoping that we can help them learn it in a much more efficient and uh, effective manner.
0: COVID-19 has meant we've all had to find different ways of working. More and more of our daily communication is done virtually. We're doing this interview over an online platform when ideally we'd have been in a proper studio has there been impacts on your research because of the pandemic?
1: To some degree, certainly. And I, I know that a lot of the the work that we've been doing and some of my, my junior doctors have been doing is now in a virtual environment. Um, they're doing work, um, doing telemedicine, so being here on a camera much as we are right now. And I mean, I would say my research has adapted. So Previously, I was focused on debriefings um, after simulated events that take place in person, sitting in a circle. And just recently, we had a paper accepted looking at virtual debriefing. So part of the effects of COVID-19 is to perhaps hamper some things, but also provide an opportunity to learn about other things. To give you an example, um, I'm doing some work looking at peer learning between medical students, which is also quite conversational, and how medical students learn from their peers and near peers, so people who are just ahead of them, specifically in in learning environments that are longitudinal, so they're with the same people over time, and in some instances for a year or two or four. And one of the things we realized that in the outpatient clinic setting, where they work with their peers for up to four years, now half of their patient interactions are in a virtual space with one of their peers. So they're there with an upper level medical student and they're chatting with a patient together. And before and after those virtual interactions with the patient, these students are interacting with each other again. So you could imagine that because they are now in a virtual space in interacting and reflecting on what went well, what they could do differently, that it's actually amplifying This is one of the things we're hoping to look at, is amplifying the impact of peer learning because they're actually, that's all they can do is interact with each other. They can't quickly run away and take a break. They're actually together. So that's how I would say COVID-19 has impacted some of the work that I'm doing.
0: So this podcast is all about the Karolinska Prize for Research in Medical Education. What has been your experience of being involved in the fellowship and what has it meant for your research?
1: Well, I've known about the Karolinska Institute for um, many years, and I know that they award every two years the uh, the Karolinska Prize in Medical Education, which in my circles is the ultimate prize. And I had the good fortune of being a visiting professor at Karolinska about five years ago and uh, was welcomed quite warmly there. And so it was a very special event for me to travel back in November, especially with the... Uh, illustrious group of medical education researchers who convened there, and with the mentors, uh, Laurel Ellingard, Jonas, uh, Brian Hodges, and David Irby. And uh, it really highlighted for me the importance of community and the value of coming together to exchange ideas and to inspire and be inspired by others. And I mean, it was just an incredibly valuable experience to me and I cherish it very much.
0: So finally, what are your future plans, and where do you see your research going? Well, interesting that you should mention
1: that, because as I I hinted early in our call, I am right now in the middle of preparing for a professional move to Dublin, Ireland. And at the end of the year, I will become the chair and professor of the Centre for Simulation Education and Research. And so I'm will leave clinical practice and devote most of my attention to research in in healthcare simulation particular also with a with an eye towards other domains and how the lessons that we've gleaned from healthcare debriefing healthcare simulation can apply in other areas and a lot of the work that I've done on debriefing team interactions this this notion of l- using simulation to help people learn from workplace encounters is something that has applicability in other areas. So for me, I really intend to continue down this path of learning conversations, peer to peer interactions with an eye toward helping young doctors and other health professionals prepare for and learn from their clinical work and also extend out into other other areas.
0: Dr. Walter Epic In the next episode, we'll hear from Dr. Tarusha a clinical psychologist from South Africa whose research is looking at the engagement between the global north and the global south. I hope you can join us then.